0: Uh, that's, that's not a good way to learn it. Uh, in fact, you probably will not learn it that way. It'll overwhelm you. The Bible is designed to be, to be d- divided up. He talks about rightly dividing the Word of Truth. So we have given you, or are about to give you, or have been giving you, uh, 17 divisions of the Bible. The Bible rightly divides itself into 17 component parts. Each one of them deal with a different aspect of the Word of God. Your job, and we've talked about this before, and I reiterate this because this is what you need to do. Your job is, we're going through two uh, a, a month, and your job is to take the two that I give you today and in between now and the next time we're together, completely break down and and get that material that you thoroughly understand it. Get it into your Bible, uh, get it all ready to go that you com- you should... But by today, when you're here, we have come through the first four. You should have those completely down and in your Bible. Uh, somebody asked me, a couple of people have asked me who were in the old institute uh, years ago, uh, if I was going to do tests like I did back when. And uh, we had tests back in the day, and it probably took you four or five hours to do the test. Everybody would come in on a Saturday morning, and they'd stay there till they got it done. And uh, I I told them that, you know, uh, to me, you know, I've learned through um, that testing doesn't really prove anything. Uh, Testing is all it means is you have memorized the material to pass that particular test. The real test will be what you do with the material after I give it to you. That'll be the real test. You will fail or pass based on that. And that'll be on you. It won't be anything that I grade. Uh, The grade card will come in at the Judgment Seat of Christ. So uh, your responsibility is to take each one of these and break it down, thoroughly understand it, and uh, and then put it back to work for you, where when we're done, you can bolt all these together and you'll have a complete overview of the Bible. It's the easiest, simplest way uh, to do it, and it's the way that God designed to do it. I didn't make these divisions up. they uh, They're just natural breaks in the Bible that you want to section the Bible out. So... We looked at the first section, which was Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, and we know what that represents. Then we, we looked at uh, uh, Genesis 1-2 and 3, uh, the rebuilding of everything that God created in 1-1 and 1-2. We know all about that. Then we looked into Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and that was dealing with Adam and Eve, and we learned their whole concept. And then we finished up last time with Noah and the flood, and uh, we covered uh, all of that. And that brings us up to our our fifth section today, and that will be uh, starting with the life of Abraham. And this will run us through Genesis chapter 10, uh, right up to Genesis chapter 36. And you want to get these breakdowns in your Bible. They're they're very important uh, chapter-wise, you know, as we go through them. Now, we find, we know that the theme of the Old Testament uh, is the kingdom of heaven. We know that. We know now that the kingdom, everything in the Bible rests on the understanding of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. We already came through that in our, before we got into this. That's foundational when it comes to the Bible. So now we know that the Old Testament and the nation of Israel is all about the literal, visible kingdom of heaven that has to do with the, uh, nothing else but the uh, nation of Israel and all of the physical promises that were given to them. The Old Testament in, is many things. One of it, it is a record of the giving of the kingdom of heaven uh, to individuals uh, and then the devil coming back and taking it away. Adam was, was the uh, keeper of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and the devil showed up and he lost both kingdoms. Then you find the kingdom uh, of heaven, the kingdom of God is gone now. Then you find the kingdom of heaven moving down through uh, individuals. Uh, everybody loses it. Uh, and the reason for that is, is that nobody could keep it. And so what happens when you get to Abraham? Abraham is a key place in your Bible that I want you to understand. Abraham, to the Jews today and to the Jews in the Bible, Abraham was the central figure of who they were because it all starts with Abraham. And Abraham uh, is called the, uh, the father uh, of the nation of Israel. He's referenced as Father Abraham. And we see with Abraham, everything now changes. We see with Abraham that Abraham, uh, God is no longer going to take the kingdom of heaven away from anybody. The covenant that he makes with Abraham will carry on all the way through to the nation of Israel and carry through even to today. And uh, what he tells him is where before the devil could take that kingdom from them and then uh, God would have to instill it back. Now he's telling Abraham that uh, uh, it's an unconditional covenant. He tells him that, you know what, I will whip the fire out of you as a nation, and I will I will send other nations to judge you, but I won't take it from you. And this begins the great um, the great uh, uh, unveiling in the Bible of, of the nation of I- nation of Israel. And your old testament your old testament, and I'm going to point these out as we come through, but I'm just going to give it to you now. Your Old Testament uh, wraps itself around the nation of Israel. Now what I'm doing is I'm bringing you through 17 components of the Bible uh, that are going to lay the Bible out for you. But when it comes to your Old Testament, the Old Testament will solely be about the nation of Israel. I know. you got Adam and Eve. you got all of that. I'm explain this to you. And I've said this before, in the Old Testament, God's plan, His program for reaching the world was the nation of Israel through the kingdom of heaven, the literal visible kingdom. In the New Testament, it's about reaching the world through the church, you and me, and the spiritual kingdom of the kingdom of God. So you want to remember that. We've talked about that a lot so far in our, in our study because it's, it's a key element. But now we begin to see uh, Abraham show up. And we now begin to see that the Old Testament is built around five concepts concerning the nation of Israel. And you'll want to get these down. I'm not going to give you the the chapters and verses on them. I'm going to point them out as we go through. Uh, But I'm going to give them to you now so you you know what you have. What we're going to look at here with Abraham and the life of Abraham. And uh, we're going to look at the formulation of the nation of Israel. We're going to look at the beginning stages of the nation of Israel. This puts everything that we've studied so far in perspective. It shows you that Adam and Eve, Noah, Enoch, uh, all all of the people that we have looked at up to this point was nothing more than God getting everybody and everything in the right place to bring about Abraham and to bring about the beginning or the formulation of the nation of Israel. That is very, very, very key. The second aspect that you're going to find, we'll probably get in also today, and this will be the calling out of the nation of Israel. Once he forms them into a nation, then in Exodus chapter 12 he calls them out, and this will bring us up through um, the uh, up to Joshua, and uh, uh, up to Joshua, and then the third one we'll get into in time will be the establishment. He formulates them, he calls them out of Egypt, and then he takes them into the land and he establishes them. This will be Judges, Joshua, all the way up to uh, David and Solomon. And then the fourth one will be the demise of the nation of Israel. And this will be Kings and Chronicles, where after Solomon, everything begins to deteriorate. And then the fifth section, and this will close out the Old Testament for us, uh, will be the captivity of the nation of Israel. And this will start around 606 B.C. for the southern tribes, 721, someplace like that, for the northern tribes, Shenacherib on the north, Babylon on the south. And uh, this puts an end to the nation of Israel as a nation. Uh, from this point on, even up to today, they're still under somebody's iron rule, uh, and they're no longer free people to do whatever they they want to do. And this also puts an end to the kingdom of heaven, which, uh, and I've given you before, the reference to that will be Psalm 78, Uh, probably the greatest place in the Bible that lays that out. So now we begin to see in Genesis chapter 10, here's what happens. In Genesis chapter 10, you have, it starts out, Now these be the generations of the sons of Noah. Noah has three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All races on the, planet, of the uh, planet Earth today come from these three boys. And these three boys rep- represent the three uh, uh, people groups within the Bible. They represent the black man, the white man, and the uh, yellow man, uh, Shemites. And so everybody on planet Earth starts out from these three guys. And obviously, as time goes on, intermingling gives sub-races and all of that stuff. But fundamentally, it starts with these three. And uh, everything else is a, is a mixture of intermarriage over the years that produces, you know, another, another, another race, or what we, we would call a sub-race based on the uh, three main races that come from here. In verse 2, you have the sons of J- uh, Japheth. Uh, in verse 6, you have the sons of Ham. And then, of course, uh, uh, if you look at um, verse 6, it says, "...and the sons of uh, sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizbeth, and Phut, and Canaan." And the sons of Cush, Sheba and Havilah, Sabbath, Ramah, uh, Sashakan, and the sons of Ramoth, Sheba and Dedan. And Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a uh, mighty one in the earth. And he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now that throws a lot of people off because they think that Nimrod, who, by the way, is, your, uh, is one of the great types of antichrist in the Bible. If you know that Nimrod, he, uh, he, uh, he, he starts Babel down there in verse 10. The word Babel means confusion. Babylon means confusion. And uh, he starts this. But people read that and they say that he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. They think that that means that he's doing something good for God. And of course that's that's not what it's talking about. What it is talking about here that uh, he's doing what he's doing and God is watching it. He's doing it before the Lord. He's not doing it for the Lord. He's doing it before the Lord. The Lord is watching what he's doing. So you want to I'd mark that in your Bible if you don't have that marked already. And then we begin to see the Tyre uh, begin to babble here. Now what happens, uh, and by the way, this is the first Gentile kingdom found in the Bible, uh, Babel here, and from here we find all the false religions beginning to come back, and we begin to see uh, through Ham, we begin to see all of the, all of the, uh, all of the false things begin to come in. And so we come up down through here, and then in verse twenty-one, we have uh, we have uh, a Shem, and Shem comes all the way down through here. And so we we uh, talked about the in, in chapter eleven, verse ten, it talks about the generations of Shem. And look down in verse twenty-six. This is the first time he pops up in your Bible, and you want to. Put a red circle around this if you don't have one with your little red pencil. Um, Abram. It's the first time he shows up in the Bible when he's out of Shem's line. And uh, now we begin to look at, uh, as I said, uh, Ab- Abraham. And, and he's called Abram. And then there's later his name is changed to Abraham. Uh, Abram means high father. And uh, Abraham means the father of many nations. And he's, uh, it, the name change is significant because Abraham goes through his struggle just like we all do. And then he gets to the point where God uh, changes his name. His wife does the same thing, uh, Sarah, uh, Sarai to Sarah. And uh, God changes her name. And so what we have here is, a, is, a, uh, is, is the beginning of uh, the 12 tribes. From Abraham, you're going to have Isaac. From Isaac, uh, you're going to have Jacob. And then from Jacob, you're going to have the 12 tribes. This all takes place in chapters 10 through chapter 36. We'll talk about it briefly, just so that you get an understanding of it and how it works. In chapter 11, you have something that happens that uh, uh, is, a, is a very unique thing. It says in 11, one, and the whole earth was one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found in a plain of Shinar, uh, they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go, let us make brick uh, and uh, uh, brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime uh, they had for mortar. And they said, Go to let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered upon the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined uh, to do. There's a book you ought to read. I think we have it in the bookstore uh, from time to time. Uh, John makes them up. Uh, I think it's probably one of the most provocative books that I ever read of all the books that I've read. And uh, it's a book by a guy with the name of Emo Gumelech. And uh, the name of the book is, Did Genesis Man Conquer Space? Uh, It is one of the most incredible books that I have ever read. And what it does is that it shows you that uh, what most people don't know today, or, or Christianity has certainly forgotten it today, and that is the mind of a man in Genesis chapter 6, and then couple that with the uh, infusion of the wisdom from the sons of God that came down in Genesis chapter 6, like we talked about Thursday night. It was incredible. And uh, he basically lays out uh, in his book uh, the level of technology of Genesis chapter 6 and again in Genesis chapter 11 was unparalleled. Most people get the idea, and this is because this is what the devil wants us to think, that we're living in a post-caveman times back here, you know, that people had very, uh, uh, you know, had, had a very tough lifestyle as far as, uh, you know, no modern, no modern conveniences, no modern anything that went on. And yet, uh, archaeology is just scratching the surface of, of, of the things that they're finding that they, they don't understand, uh, that they find that we're, go back for thousands of years uh, to this time period, and yet there are things that are so advanced that uh, we just now today uh, have figured them out, like things like solar batteries and things that they find that uh, uh, many of the cave dwellings and the cave paintings that they find uh, back there were actually have pictures of flying discs and all the things, and somebody coming down from uh, the sky, all lining up uh, you know with the Bible in Genesis chapter six. Uh, And then again in Genesis chapter 11. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 that there were giants in those days. And then a little pause and it says, and also after that. Those sons of God came back down again. And the Bible doesn't give you exactly when they come back down, but they show up. Because by the time that uh, the the nation of Israel gets into uh, the promised land in Aaron Joshua, those giants have, have populated all of Canaan's land. And they're pretty much running everything and they're pretty much in control. And of course, the plan was that while they're down in Egypt for 430 years, the devil's setting them over there so he can keep them out. He knows God's plan too. So, but in Genesis chapter 11 here, you have the Tower of Babel. And there's some interesting things that I want you to see about this. First of all, verse 1 says the whole earth was one language and one speech. The key word for the Tower of Babel at uh, this time period is unity. This is a picture of the one-world religion under the Antichrist that's about to come here uh, in in a short time. And uh, uh, whatever they were going to do, and I want want you to mark verse 6. Verse 6 is very instructive. Whatever they were going to do with this tower, whatever they were going to accomplish with it, look at verse 6. The Lord comes down and looks at it, And he said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. There's a unity there uh, at this time over the whole earth. There are no individual nations here. I want you to understand that. We have one city. We have one one religion. We have one unity. And it's all around Baal and Baal worship and Babel. And the Lord says in verse 6, And this they begin to do, meaning the tower. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So he's telling us here that whatever was in their imagination to do, they were going to be able to do it. The technology level of the men of Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 11 is unparalleled and unbelievable. Here's one of the reasons for it. We go back in history and we look at men like Einstein, men like uh, uh, great minds, great mathematicians, great history men, great teachers, great whatever. And you know, they write books in their lifetime, and uh, you know, they get born just like you and I do. They live. Some of them die in their fifties, their sixties, or, or seventies. Some lived to a full age of eighty or ninety, and so they live, you know, three score and ten. And then we glean from them what they did in that 70-year period, 80-year period, or whatever. Stop and think if the greatest mind that ever lived in the history of the world, whoever that may be, didn't die when they were 70. That lived to be 800 years old. That never really got to their real potential of learning until after three or 400 years. Now, you start to think that back in Genesis 6, men were living six, seven, eight hundred years, the knowledge that must have been amassed. Think in our own time that if all the great learned scientists of yesteryear were still alive with all the ones today and they had another 500 years to work together with minds that are very close to the beginning of things, what could be accomplished? And this is what you're dealing with here in Genesis chapter 6 and in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 in these early times. Now, I know after the flood, the the lifespan changes. I get that. But they're coming off a lot of information that they had before the flood because three people came through the flood. And, uh, you know, we we know now that by the time uh, we get to Genesis chapter 11, there was a lot of people on the planet. And uh, the time period there, I I know you just turn a you just turn a page, but uh, the time of the flood is around 2200 uh, BC and the time of Genesis chapter uh, 11 and 12 here, when we're in here, is down around 1920 BC. So you had people all that period of time who are, are living, you know, two, three hundred years or two hundred years and are having kids and the earth is being pretty well populated in that time period. So what you have here is the uh, Tyre of Babel and the devil again uh, through all of this going to try to take over the earth and to captivate everything for himself through Babel, through a one world religion and a one world government just like he's going to do uh, in the tribulation period uh, as the Antichrist. And when God saw what they were doing, he understood that they could accomplish what they want. Now, we don't know for sure what this tower was, but we know what it wasn't. I mean, uh, where it says there, "...whose top may reach unto heaven." We know that uh, they weren't just trying to try to build ball buildings so they could look around and sightsee like the Eiffel Tower. There was a purpose to this tower. And knowing what we know already from Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God who had come down, and their understanding of the knowledge that the sons of God brought, it's safe to understand that this tower, whatever it was, and I've heard all kinds of things on it, and it may be true or may not, I've heard everything from a radio tower beacon to a, uh, a pulsating uh, magnetic thing that, to attract the sons of God to have them to come back down. Whatever it was, whatever, it's, whatever it did, and I, uh, there's no dogmatic thing on that, I can tell you this, its purpose was to reconnect with the sons of God to have them come back down. That's what their purpose was. And, of course, uh, uh, God, God fixes it. And, you know, he fixes it in such a simple way. Uh, you know, if there's anything that, and we've been talking about the simplicity of God, if there's anything that, that proves the simplicity of God, it's the, the way that God takes something so simple and just throws a wrench in everything on the world. I mean, you go back to Genesis 6, 7, and 8, when the earth was overrun with wickedness and ungodliness and all the things that were going on, and all the things that were happening. You know, God didn't, God didn't come down with some uh, galactic thunder. He just, he just brought in something that is so basic and so simple. He brought in rain. And rain did the work. It wasn't something that, that, that we look at and we terrified of. It rained. God's answer to the complexity of sin was just a little concept. I'm going to have it rain this afternoon. It's going to rain for 40 days, but it's going to rain. When we come to this here, when God comes down and he says, you know what? Whatever they imagine to do. And stop and think about that. They want to get to the sons of God again. They're building this tower. Whatever they imagine to do, he's saying they have the technological ability to do it. So he puts a stop to it. And here again, he didn't come down with some galactic thunder and and wipe out everybody. He just change the languages. I mean, they started out the work that morning and they were all speaking one language and they were working on different levels of that pyramid or that tower, whatever it was. And, you know, uh, they, they're up there and they're communicating back and forth and everybody's just like little bumblebees and little ants working away. And, and suddenly God comes down and he just blinks his eye and you have now uh, 238 dialects that just everybody got into and when the guy on the third level yelled up to the fourth level, uh, hey, send me, uh, send me up, send me down some more, you know, b- bolts and rivets. By the time I got up there, it was octone to that, and nobody could figure it out. Now, the amazing thing about this that I want you to see, by one little stroke of just changing the languages, God, at that point, set man back for the next 5000 years. We today have not gotten back to where they were in Genesis chapter 10. The technology that they had, we've had to piece our way through. But here's what happened. Well, before Genesis chapter 11, they were all earthlings. Now from after the Tower of Babel, they're all nations. And that that set into play <coughs> a whole new ball game that destroyed the unity. And now you don't have everybody on earth with a common cause together as earthlings. Now you have individual nations that are suspect of all the other individual nations and the human nature of man, you want to conquer them. So there's no getting together. You see it today. I, I told you today that, uh, it, I told you that in the day that we live in, that there's so many problems in the world, there's not any one man that can solve those. Not a human man anyhow. It's gonna take somebody to come down like they did in Genesis chapter six, the Antichrist, and, and, and bring everybody together. And once he gets everybody together, then he's gonna be right back in Genesis chapter 11 and we're gonna see that the whole aspect uh, is about uh, bringing the world together, unifying it. We talk about unity a lot in everything that we do in America and around the world, but there'll never be any unity because there's too much disharmony. And it all goes back to Genesis chapter 11. When Genesis chapter 11 took place, it put an end to the world concept of let's all get along and and let's all work together. Uh, It's not going to happen now. And it's because we went from being earthlings to Germans, Swedes, Americans, Central Americans, Russians, Czechoslovakians, uh, Serbians, uh, Filipinos, Australians, uh, British. It's all now changed. And nobody is going to work to a common goal because everybody is suspect to the other person. And this is, this is what God did. And when he did that, he not only cut the lifespans in half and pretty quickly, they're even less than that through the Bible says they're three score and 10, 70 years. But he shut off the flow of people working together uh, with the information that they had. Now the information that America has, they're not sharing with anybody. And the information that Russia has, they're not sharing with anybody. And now we have governments that have central intelligence agency to guard our secrets and steal the ones from the other guy. And that's exactly how it worked from Genesis chapter 11 on. So everything changed. Everything. And uh, God did that because, again, we're looking at the formulation of the nation of Israel. He had to divide up the nations to put an end to what Babel was doing under Nimrod. And uh, he had to put an end to that and he had to now develop nations because he's going to bring out of this cesspool of nations one nation, the nation of Israel. That's what he's going to do. And we begin to see that in Genesis chapter 11 he tells us the story, but then in, in verse 26 we find Abram showing up. And in chapter 12, We move right into this, and we begin to see that now the Lord had said unto Abram, I get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, for thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee, and in she shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, a little bit later on in Genesis 18 and 18, he says all the nations are going to be blessed. This is Israel's job in the Old Testament, is to affect nations. But I want you to notice, they affect nations through families. And that's the job of the church in a spiritual way. It's to affect the eternal destiny of, of nations. But you do it through families. And that's the key. But that's a great principle there. And so he tells him uh, to get out of 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 all of uh, all where he's at. And Abraham is down here in Babylon. He's down here in all the mess of it. And uh, and then we see in verse four, uh, we see the first problem. And this is not only Abraham's problem, but it's our problem. Uh, God made it very clear that he was to go. If you see there. Uh, He says, uh, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. That was the direct commandment of God. Leave everything and everybody and get to where I tell you to go. Verse 4, so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him and Lot went with him. He didn't totally obey what God said. Anytime you put somebody in your life that God tells you to leave out you're going to have problems. It's just that simple. Lot was a was a source of of contention for him uh, all of his life. Uh, Lot uh, represents everything that uh, the world was. And Lot finally winds up in Sodom. And uh, what a mess that is. And uh, Lot is a picture of an unsaved man or a worldly Christian uh, who aligns with the world and uh, loses his kids. And loses everything. And uh, it, it, the idea of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah is one of the greatest counseling concepts, and we studied it in the people ministry. It's one of the greatest counseling principles that you're ever going to find. God, uh, God loved Lot, and the Bible says that he's righteous. He's a picture of a saved man, righteous Lot. He was vexed his con- a filthy soul, uh, vexed his soul with the filthy conversation of the world. Lot was who he was because of who he associated with. And you'll always be who you, are, who you are, who you associate with. You know, it's one of those things. You can go through the Bible, and we're going to talk about it tomorrow when we get into the magic verse for you. I'm sure you all got your refrigerators cleaned off now and just have one spot for one verse you're going to put on tomorrow. You always wanted one verse that'll solve every problem you ever have in your life? We'll give it to you tomorrow. It's your magic verse. It'll take care of every issue you got. You can throw every other verse away. When you get up in the morning, you don't have to, you, you know, those little cards that you have that we give you here? Throw them away. <laughs> Put them in the trash can on the way out. Now you just need one verse. If you just follow this one verse, you're done. Your problems are over. And that was Lot's problem, or Abraham's problem, and Lot's problem. And when we see Lot showing up down in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we, we learn a great principle. Uh, Abraham loved him and didn't want him to be destroyed, because you know that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God didn't want to kill him. Uh, so, uh, you know, God sends some angels down there to get him out, and finally they get him out after a, a real, you know, a real tough time. And, uh, and it always bothered me. Well, not bother me. It's just a picture of human nature. You see it in God's people. Lot just couldn't see anything wrong with Sodom. He just couldn't. I mean, here he is. The homosexuals show up because they find there's two men in town and they want to know them. And he shows up at his house and knocks on the door. And he comes out and he tells the two guys to stay in there. And he goes out and you know what he says to the homosexual queers that are out there uh, beat, wanting to beat down his door? He says, come on, brethren. Brethren? He just couldn't see anything wrong with Sodom. And he had no value system because he said, don't, don't, don't drag these two guys out uh, and, and, and have sex with them. I'll tell you what, I've got two daughters here that have a known man. Take them. That's some value system you got. I mean, there are some of God's people that just do not have a value system and they just can't see anything wrong with what they do. And it brings up the great principle. Finally, they got him out, but they had to force him out. And his wife, bless her heart, you know, they're out there and and they're they're mumbling and complaining about that. And his wife, you know, she says, man, I just, we just bought that new house and it was so nice. And, you know, I just got in the garden club and all the people there and they were so nice. And now we're out here, we're going to live in a cave. And, you know, I don't have my nice things. I had to leave my rings, my necklaces. I didn't get half my nice clothes. And she has to turn around one more time and just linger back at Sodom. God says she turned into a pillar of salt. Salt be a picture of judgment in the Bible. The great principle is the fact that changing geographical locations will never solve your problem. The problem wasn't getting Lot out of Sodom. The problem was getting Sodom out of Lot. The problem is not you getting away from your sin. The problem is you getting your sin out of your life and recognizing for what it is. And of course... He couldn't do it. Along with that, we see the great principle of Abraham uh, not uh, not uh, obeying what God said. Because all of Abraham's life, Lot becomes a, a headache for him and a problem for him. And we, we find that, you know, the next thing you look at in Abraham's life is that God wants to do something with him. Well, you can look over here in Genesis chapter uh Genesis chapter uh, 15, look at verse 5. He says, and he brought him forth, God bringing Abraham forth, uh, and said, look now toward heaven and tell the number of stars, if thou be able to uh, number them. And he said unto them, so shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and it was counted on him to rise. Now right here, uh, right here, uh, verse chapter 14 and 15, <coughs> is where Abraham gets the kingdom of heaven. Notice he says he brought him forth abroad and look now toward heaven. See? Someday your seed's going to be like the stars of heaven. This is where he gets the kingdom of heaven. And uh, now this is, this, is where, this is where he gets that unconditional covenant that God says, you know what? I'm not taking this one away from you. I may beat you up, and I may put you through the tribulation period, but I'm going, to, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to take care of you. Now, there's a verse in the New Testament where it talks about the nation of Israel that people get confused on. It says, and the gifts and the calling of God to Israel without repentance. And, of course, people think that Israel means that Israel's going to get God's favor without getting right with God. That's not what it says. I've told you before, the word repentance never means you get right. The word repentance means you just go a different way, and when the Bible says that the gifts and calling of God to Israel are without repentance, it simply means that God made a promise to Abraham, and he's not going to repent on that promise. He's not going to turn from giving them what he said he was going to give them. That's what it means, and this is where the covenant becomes unconditional. This is a key place in your Bible, and it begins to we begin to move through this. It, it begins to get a thing that you you want to see these things that. Uh, how important they are. Now, we begin to see uh, some great pictures here. Abraham, I've said it many, many times, uh, he's the father of the nation of Israel, and he represents uh, everything that Israel always looks back to. In Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, when uh, Peter and Stephen are preaching there, Peter doing most of the preaching, uh, when they want to plead to the Jews about their God, they always Go back to Abraham, because he is the beginning. He's the start of it all. And yet we look at Abraham's life, and I've said this before. From a practical application, uh, Abraham's life is a great picture of your life and my life. He doesn't. Abraham is only one of two men in the Bible who uh, the Bible sells as God's friend. And I know God has a lot of friends. But specifically, when God mentions that there's two men, you want to study those men. And you're going to find that in your life, in my life, I would hope that for you, certainly I didn't know it is for me, that I want to be God's friend and I want him to be my friend. But I realized that, you know, Abraham didn't start out being God's friend and neither will you. I didn't either. In other words, there was a process that he went to go through. And in that process, Abraham made some bad choices. And uh, it started with them taking a lot instead of listening to what God. I, uh, my best piece of advice that I could give you, not as a pastor, just as another Christian who's been around for a while. My best piece of advice I could give you in your Christian life, make as few bad choices that you can make. Make as few bad choices that you can make. You may get away with some of them, but there'll be some that you make that you'll never return from. And you need to keep in your mind that, uh, that Abraham has made some bad choices. The next bad choice he makes is with, with Hagar. God promised him a promised seed. He got to be 90-some years old or whatever, 86, whatever. He got, to be, uh, he got to be old up in age. and Nobody has kids at that age. And so uh, he panicked. He panicked, and what he did was he listened to his wife, and his wife said, here, take Hagar, uh, my hand servant, who is a Hamite. She's from Egypt. Uh, she's out of Nimrod's crowd, and you go ahead and, 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 and have the promised seed through 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 her. And of course, Abraham, uh, this time Abram, uh, I don't know what he was thinking. I, I don't know why he would think that uh, God would override his own word uh, by anybody, less uh, Sarah. I I just don't get why he thought that uh, Sarah's word about it was better than God's word about it, and he hearkened unto her. And of course, now he brings in uh, a son uh, through Hagar, and we know him to be Ishmael. And that, you know, somebody says doesn't look like much. Somebody says, well, you know, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal was that the problems we have in the Middle East right now today the problem with all the Muslims, the problem with all the bombings and 9/11 and all the issues in the Middle East and in America and certainly in, in England and certainly across Europe, all goes back to the mistake he made right here. For the next four thousand years, the Israelites turn into the Mohammeds and they turn into the to the the uh, the, uh, uh, the Muslims, who not only hate uh, the nation of Israel, but hate everybody else. And it all goes back to one bad choice. And uh, it, it goes to show you that, that when, if something doesn't change in your world, when you make a bad choice, if something doesn't change it, you don't change it, God doesn't come down and stop it, that thing just gets worse the longer it goes. It ain't going to get any better. And we're so stupid in our mind that we think that it will or that it does, and when truth, it, it never will, it won't. And that, that's a great study here with Abraham. So Abraham, he, uh, he produces Ishmael. Ishmael's a source of problem for the nation of Israel, uh, even up to today. And it all goes back there. The Muslims, they claim, they claim Abraham as their father too. They say that all the promises given to the promised seed, which is Isaac, uh, really was supposed to go to Ishmael. And uh, this is where the contention goes. This is the real fundamental why the Muslims hate the Jews. It goes right back to Abraham uh, getting out of God's will and listening to somebody else instead of what the Word of God says. It's just that simple. So we see it moves on down through the Bible, and this is the formulation of the nation of Israel. You want to remember this. The formulation of Israel comes to the point where Abraham finally gets the promised seed, Isaac. Isaac is probably one of the great studies in the Bible. Isaac is the only one of the kids, uh, or the patriarchs, that doesn't really have a lot of problems. And yet we find a lot of things in Isaac's life. We find that uh, uh, Abraham obviously has learned his lessons because in Genesis chapter 24, when he wants to find a bride for Isaac, he makes it very clear that he tells his servant uh, that, that make sure that you don't get her somebody that where uh, Ishmael was from. And he's learned his lessons. And of course, we know that Genesis chapter 24, there's 19 principles there that are probably the greatest principles anywhere in the Bible on how to find a spouse, whether it's a male or a female. Uh, they are key principles that you follow them, you're going to turn out okay. You don't follow them, well, you know what? You're going to be have some trouble. And it's the thing where they're in there for a reason. So Isaac is one of the great studies in the Bible, as I said. Isaac is a great type of Christ. Abraham, Genesis chapter 22, lays him on the altar and he's uh, going to sacrifice him to God. And when he does that, Genesis chapter 22, all the elements there uh, are, are there that is a, a picture of Christ dying on the cross. Uh, they travel to Moriah, the land of Moriah. That's exactly where Christ was crucified, Mount Moriah. Uh, they come to the place where uh, when they get off there, that uh, Isaac uh, carries the, the wood for the sacrifice on his back, like Christ carried the cross. Uh, you find uh, that he has a knife. Abraham has a knife in his hand and a, and fire in his hand. Picture of the word of God and God's judgment going to be poured out on on uh, on Christ. Uh, everything is right there, and uh, it's one of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible. Isaac is a great study in the Bible. Now the counter counter to that great study will be the next boy. That's Jacob, and Jacob means schemer. Oh, Jacob's a good study in the Bible. Uh, when you find Jacob, if you're dealing with people and you want to learn about deception and people deceiving you and the deceptions that people come up with, uh, boy, Jacob is the guy. And uh, he got his problems and he goes through it and he gets right with God there a little bit later on and God comes down and whacks him. And then we find from Jacob. Now we're in the formulation of the nation of Israel. We've come up through all of this, all the way from Genesis right up to here. Adam and Eve and Noah, all the way up to here. We've come through Abraham. We've seen Isaac. We've come through uh, Ishmael and all of that. Uh, we get to Jacob. We have another little counterbalance here, and that'll be Esau. Esau in the Bible, and Esau is, is Jacob's brother. Esau in the Bible uh, represent the Edomites, and they uh, they go against the nation of Israel, uh, and that's why in the Bible uh, we haven't got there yet, but there's one book in the Bible that is written against the Edomites, not the book of Obadiah. So, We're coming through this, and Jacob has 12 boys. And from these 12 boys, now we begin to see the 12 tribes of Israel. And, uh, you know, we begin to see now as uh, uh, it begins to formulate. And that's what this section is really all about. This section here of of the uh, fifth section, running from Genesis chapter 10 to Genesis chapter 36, is about the formulation of the nation of Israel. You want to remember that. Five stages of Israel. I'm going to point them out to you within the 17 components that you'll want to study individually and then bold them all together. Now that'll move us into the sixth one. Now this will be Genesis chapter 37 to Genesis chapter 50, end of the book. And this is the God's plan to get the nation of Israel down into Egypt. And uh, this is one of the great uh, segments of the Bible. And this will represent for us the uh, the beginning of the calling out. This is the beginning of the calling out. This will run us from... Uh, uh, the calling out will run us from, gen- from here right all the way up to... Uh, uh, you know, Deuteronomy and into uh, uh, the next four books of the Bible, but uh, it begins right here. And when God took them down into Egypt, He took them down into Egypt because they, He has to make them into a nation. And this is another great principle: He knows that He knows that what will make somebody strong is adversity. Uh, you know, we don't we don't find many strong Christians today. Most Christians are very weak. They're very wimpy. They don't have any steel in their backbone. And uh, that, that speaks to the number one problem with Christianity today, and that is the fact that there's no adversity toward cre- real adversity. Nobody really stands for anything. Oh, we'll stand for, you know, major issues, but <clears throat> you won't take a personal stand. And adversity doesn't come because you go pick at a, uh, you know, a quick trip or pick at a you know, uh, abortion clinic or someplace. Adversity doesn't come because you you take on a national issue. Adversity comes when you personally take a stand for something with God against everybody else, and you have to pay the price for it. That's adversity. Most of God's people won't have that in their lives. They want an easy, cushy time. They're not gonna They're not gonna say anything, do anything, or 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 get into a situation where uh, any adversity comes in their life. So there's no there's no there's no growth. There's no, there's no building them strong. God sent them down into Egypt because he was going to bring them out. Now, they're down there for 430 years. And if you look down here in Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham. He says in verse 13, and he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them uh, and afflict them for 400 years. And, of course, uh, when you go over to (coughs) Genesis chapter 48, verse 45, you'll find that he adds in the 30 years that he's dealing with here. So it comes out to 430 years total, but 400 years per se down in Egypt. They're down there for four generations, 400 years. And, by the way, that sets uh, another one of the numbers of a generation at 100. So they're down there, and for 400 years, they're going through the adversity of Egypt and then he brings them out as a strong nation. And uh, there's a lot of great things about this because now we find that uh, we, we come over to Genesis chapter 37 here, coming through all we've come through. Now we find another guy coming up here that is a great guy to study and probably one of the greatest studies anywhere in the Bible, <clears throat> and this will be Joseph. And Joseph shows up in Genesis chapter thirty-seven, and uh, Joseph (coughs) Joseph is the greatest type of Christ within the Bible. Now, in the Bible, there's there's pictures of things that we call them type typology. In other words, you can read something in the Bible, somebody in the Bible, some event in the Bible, and that will be a type of something that is going to happen in the future, or a type of somebody. Uh, When you talk about the Antichrist, we talked about Cain, we talked about Nimrod. In the Old Testament, there are 18 men who are types of the Antichrist. In other words, if you want to get a complete picture of the Antichrist, study the characteristics and the traits of these 18 men. And there's 18 because 666 equals 18. So there's 18 of them. If you want to get a picture of the Antichrist and you want to know everything about him that you need to know, then look at these 18 men. They'll show you through what they do a type of what he really is. And when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's 21 types in the Old Testament. And uh, Joseph is the greatest type. There's three men in the Bible that you're going to find that really represent the Trinity. We've already looked at one of them, and that is Father Abraham. Father Abraham in the Bible is a type of God the Father. Uh, he is the one that the Jews look to and call Father in, in respect to God. The second greatest man in the Bible is Joseph. And Joseph uh, Joseph is, uh, is, a, is the greatest type of the Lord Jesus Christ anywhere in the Bible. And you're going to find that... Uh, uh, The Bible says that he's elevated to the second position in the kingdom. God the Father, God the Son. And Joseph is is a type of Christ in over 100 particulars that you can go through. One of the greatest studies you'll ever take in the Bible. The third man in the Bible that represents the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, will be Daniel. And if you go through Daniel, you'll find where Daniel is elevated to the third position in the kingdom. God the Father, Abraham, second position, Joseph, third position, Daniel. And those are types <coughs> that you'll find in the Bible. We call it typology. And Joseph is, is without a doubt, one of the greatest uh, studies anywhere in the Bible uh, on the crucifixion of Christ. But putting that aside, Joseph is the beginning of God's plan to get them down into Egypt that they might become out, uh, be called out here at, in 400 years. And it starts in Genesis chapter 37, and uh, it says, verse 2, and these are the generations of Jacob. And then, of course, Joseph is 17 years of age. Notice that he's out tending the flock, he's taking care of the sheep uh, with his brethren. But it specifically references him. And uh, it's a, there's a lot of things here that's a picture of. Uh, the, his brothers don't like him, his brothers uh, reject him. And uh, he was the favorite of his father. And, of course, uh, his father gave him a coat of many colors. And uh, it's a thing where, uh, look at verse uh, 3. Notice how it, it, it substitutes Jacob's name so that you don't miss the typology. Because when God changed Jacob's name, he changed it to Israel because he's going to bring forth the 12 tribes. So here, to preserve the typology... Instead of saying, now Jacob loved Joseph, so you would just think that it's a father loving his son, he changes it and he says, now Israel loved Joseph. Now you know that it's a picture of the nation of Israel uh, loving Christ, because that's who Joseph represents, Uh, more than all his children. And it's a picture of Christ coming out of the nation of Israel and Israel's favorite son being the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we get the coat of many colors. And the coat of many colors uh, represents, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, um, all the different colors showing the different uh, attributes of the Father's love for Him. Uh, in a spiritual sense, God will give some Christians who He favors more than others. And, that, and I said favor. I didn't say love. I said favors. God loves you all. But he'll favor some of you more than others based on your love back for him. See, God's love for you is unconditional. He loves you. The problem is your love back to him is not unconditional. You'll love him for the wrong motive, for the wrong reason. You'll love him today and find somebody else tomorrow and then you won't love him as much. And that's human nature, you see. God doesn't do that. God loves us all equally, but he favors some over others. And that favoritism uh, is based on uh, your love for him. And uh, you see it in almost every aspect. You certainly see it in the 12 apostles, where out of the 12, you have one who the Bible says that Jesus loved. Now, I know he loved them all, but he only says he loved one, John. And then you can study it and see how John loved him back, that the other other 11 didn't. So... (coughs) Most people don't like this, but it's true. Most of God's people do not love God on the same level as he loves them. And you're, so you wonder why you don't get the blessings. And you find somebody who loves God, somebody who really loves God with all of their heart. I'm not saying they're going to be perfect. They're going to make some mistakes. But their attitude of heart is always putting God first, the word of God first, and that's it. You're going to have greater favor in your life with God than somebody that doesn't. It's just that simple. Proof of that is here. You, too, will get a coat of many colors. And those coats of many colors, those colors will represent in your life the blessings that God has given you that are multiplied throughout everything. And you just see it. You just see it. And we have a tendency to think that that somebody that's really serving God and something bad happens to him, that that that's not a blessing. And we, we, we lose those things because we're so out of touch with everything. I already told you, your job is to suffer the adversity. And uh, that's a blessing. Uh, It's only not a blessing when you don't understand the sufferings that he did for you, so you're not willing to suffer for him. When you realize the price was paid for you, you know what Paul said? He said all the things that he went through, and boy, he went through some things. He said that they, they were a light affliction. A light affliction. Do you ever read his light affliction? Beaten with rods, 39 stripes, a day and a night in the deep, shipwrecked, bitten by a snake. I mean, uh, thrown in jail, slapped, beat, tortured. But you see, he understood what Christ did for him. And when you understand what Christ does for you, then what you go through in life, quit whining about it. You look at it as it really is, light affliction. And that's just the way it is. And most of God's people just can't do that. You know, I mean, honestly, I mean, let's be honest. Can we be honest? Most of the struggles we go through are because of our own stupidity. It isn't because we're suffering for him, because we're suffering from stupidity. (laughs) Now, when I talk like that, I am putting myself at the head of the list. I want you to know that. But I'm just telling you, that's our problem. But you're going to find God's people. You're going to find God's people who God favors better than somebody else. Uh, the reason why some of you been in this church the same time as somebody else, and they know the Bible a thousand times better than you than you do, and you're still struggling with things. We're going to talk about this tomorrow, by the way. Is that God favored them over not over, over favoring you? Now, you think that's discrimination. Well, that's fine. God's the biggest discriminator you ever meet in life, first of all. But that's not the reason. The reason is is they favored the book and you didn't. They favored wanting to learn it and you didn't. So God blessed them on their fever and their passion and their favor to learn the Word of God while you didn't have it. And now you look at somebody who's been in the church as long as you have. You look at the work that they did to get it and no work that you didn't get it. You just thought God was going to give it to you because you showed up. That ain't how it works. And of course, we read the story here. uh, His brother and the other 11 boys, they didn't like him because of it. So I'm going to tell you right now, God puts favor in your life. Listen to me. God puts favor in your life with that book. They're going to be your brethren who don't like it. They're not going to like it. They're going to do the same thing to you that they did to him. And uh, it's an incredible thing. They always, gave, they, always, they always cut him out of the loop. They always made fun of him. Whenever they were doing something, they left him out. At some point in your life, you got to get it. The picture is that the 11 boys cut Joseph out because they didn't like him. Now, if that happens to you when it'll happen to you, most of God's people, you'll take that personal. That will bother you. Well, I didn't get invited to so-and-so's thing. Well, I didn't have anything good to eat there anyhow. You didn't miss anything. Well, you know what? (laughs) They don't like me for this, or they don't like me for that. And the bottom line is, when you get plugged into that book and God puts favor in your life and not favoring somebody else, the brethren aren't going to like it. Now, get it set. Because the idea here is that the 11 boys are over here and they put him out. The real matter is that him and God are over here and God put the 11 boys out. Now you have got to see that. (laughs) That's what you got. You don't have the 11 putting him out. You have him and God putting the 11 out. See, it all comes down to how you look at it. It all comes down to how you see it. We get so caught up with what people think about us. And we ought to worry about what God thinks about us. And let the rest take care of itself. But, you know, that's 100% amen, but you won't do it. You know why? Because we're human. I get it. I get it. You want people to like you. And you know what? And when they don't like you, it bothers you. I get it. I understand. But you got to come to the place in your life that if you want the blessings of God and you want that coat of many colors... The brethren aren't going to be happy about it. And they're going to ostracize you. It goes so far here that they even think about killing him. But they don't kill him, but they fix it so they can get rid of him. But they didn't get rid of him. All God did was take what they were going to do evil to him and use it to establish the nation of Israel for what God wanted them to be. And when somebody tries to hurt you, do something to you, don't look at the short term. Look at the long term. Because the short term here looks like Joseph's out of the way. The long term is God brought all the events to bring them right back at his feet. Uh, That's because, I'm going back to it again, it's because the 11 thought they had Joseph got rid of him, but Joseph and God just got rid of the 11, and then God brought him right back. Now, there's some great principles here that I want you to see. And I want you to look at Genesis chapter 50. Now, Joseph went through a lot. He goes down there. He gets set up a few times down there. But one of the great things that you learn from it is that God was always one, head, one step ahead of everything that was going on with him. And, uh, and Joseph has t- tremendous insight. Look at jo- uh, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Probably the greatest single verse anywhere in the Bible on why we go through the things that we go through, if you can get it. But as for you, now he's, 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 he's reunited with his brethren. You know the story. They go down there, go back and forth. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. It's been a long time now. He's grown up. They thought Joseph was, you know, uh, is in slavery someplace. They sold him to the Midianites a long time ago. They had no idea that God's hand was through the whole thing, and now they're right before the very guy that they did. And what a time to be vindictive. What a time to lop off their heads and put them all in prison. See, that's what most of us would do. But see, Joseph's got insight. He's got insight because he's got the coat of many colors that they didn't have. They, well, let's read the verse. But as for you, he's talking to the boys, his brethren. But as for you, you thought evil against me. You know why they thought evil against him? Because they didn't have the favor of God in their life. Anytime you don't have the favor of God in your life, I'm going to tell you, anytime you do not have the favor of God in your life, you're going to be upset with those who do. As for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto the good to bring to pass as at this day to save much people alive. Now you see that? That took away all the personal element out of it, didn't it? He has every right to be upset. You threw me in a hole. You were going to kill me. You lied to my dad. You put him under all of this turmoil for so many years that he thinks I'm dead. You threw me down here. They put me in prison. I went through all of this, but look what God did for me. I'm not angry at you because I have insight into it. And I'm telling you, God's hand was in this. This is what God wanted to do to bring the people, my people, down to here because God's going to do some great things that he promised to Abraham. Now, the question is this. Save much people alive. The question is this. How willing are you to go through the same adversity to bring much people to save them alive? See? That's the question. How much adversity are you willing to go through having the blessings of God in your life? How much are you willing to put up with and take to save much people alive? When something happens in your life, how do you see it? Do you see there's somebody doing evil against you so you're going to get even to them? Most people do. Or do you see God's hand in it where you meant it for my evil but God meant it for my good? (coughs) And everything you go through in bad, if you're right with God and doing what God wants you to do, even the things you go through not being right with God, at some point, the good will come out of it if you see it for what it is. That's a great principle. Look back here in chapter 45. More insight. Genesis chapter 45. Verse 4. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And when they came near, he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. <clears throat> now therefore, <clears throat> be not grieved nor angry with yourself that you sold me hither, for God did send you before, send me before you to preserve life. See that thing? He sees the hand of God and what God is doing. That is the number one problem that we all have. We don't see the hand of God in what's going on in our life. We only see what affects us today immediately that I don't like. A mark of somebody that has the favor of God in their life will simply simply be you know what? I've been here before. I know how God works. Let's see how this thing plays out. It's that simple. They went through everything that they went through. <clears throat> they struggled with everything that they, they had. Joseph did. So God could get the nation of Israel down there through the families and then bring them down there for 430 years through the adversity, forge them into a strong nation because God's plan was five points. The formulation that he's going to call them out. He told Abraham that he's going to get him to a lamb, but he says it won't be for 430 years because you've got to go down and you've got to to cook on the back burner for a while. We've got to make you strong people. And nothing will make you stronger on this planet in life than the adversity you go through. It really comes down to the fact that how you deal with that adversity, how you see it. When you understand that you got the blessings of God in your life, because they're all around you, <clears throat> when, you, got the, when, you when your family is, is where they need to be and others' as families are not, when, you're, when God just turns everything you touch to gold and, and it, just, it just works for you and everything that you do, and there's others that not, when you begin to realize why people do and say the things that they do, And when you have understanding in it and you realize what it is, it doesn't bother you because you realize that it's for the right reason. Adversity ought to bother you when adversity is for the wrong reason, not when it's for the right reason. Most of God's people don't have the discernment to understand why the adversity they're going through is the adversity that they're going through. As I said, most people go through adversity because of our own stupidity, the dumb things that we do. When you realize that uh, when you live godly and you're going to be everything that God wants you to be and do whatever God wants you to do, um, that the adversity is just going to come, then you wear it as a badge of honor. You realize that uh, there's no adversity. There's nothing that anybody's going to do that's going to tarnish the coat of many colors that you got. And when you start to feel bad, you just put the coat on. You just look at all the things that God has done for you. You know, I don't look at people and, and I don't think about all the things that God hasn't done for them. I don't think that way. <clears throat> and part of the reason is, is that I'm just too busy thanking God for all the things that He does for me. I ain't got time to worry about you. And my, it's made my ministry very, very clear, very directed, and very, very purposeful. If you like it, fine. If you don't, fine. It's one of those things where it's that, uh, as long as God likes it, that's all I really care about. I'm glad that you like it. And I really am glad that you like it because you're nice people. But at the end of the day, there's only one that I care really likes it, and that's the Lord. And when you realize that you, you have uh, the potential to be everything that God wants you to be. But there's some things mentally you got to get past. You see, most of God's people just think that if they study the Bible and they learn the Bible, that that'll get them to a place of maturity. Well, obviously, that's a good thing to do. But just studying the Bible on its own and just, and just getting verses and looking at things, that's not going to, by itself, is not going to bring you to the place where you can take your stand for God. There has to come a time in your life when you actually take your stand. And you have to take the stand, and you may be against your friend. It may be against some of your family. It may be against somebody that's really close to you. But you have to take your stand. And that will always cost you something. And, and, and we're, we're not very big today in the latest in church about paying for the cost of anything. We are right that he paid the cost. But don't let him ask me to pay the cost. That's where we're at today. Oh, I thank God you paid the cost. Great price. Oh, thank you very much. No, I'm not going to give you anything today. I'm just going to keep it for myself. That's where we're at. That's that's Christianity today, and it goes back to understanding or not understanding what God did for us. So you begin to see, you begin to see that uh, this is a this is a great picture of 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 God taking them down into uh, into the Promised Land and and setting it up as far as everything that they, they go through. And this is the beginning of the calling out. I put this in a section by itself because um, even though it connects to uh, the next one, it by itself is a is a great picture uh, that you need to look at because there's so much here. If I lump them all together, uh, so I six six and seven are basically the calling out, uh, but six is them going down to Egypt for the preparation of the calling out. I, that's in in all the stuff with Joseph and the adversity, the things that go on. Uh, it, it's just incredible. And, uh, you know, you're going to find it, as I said, Joseph is a great type of Christ. You're going to find that uh, in Genesis chapter 37, the first time you find Joseph and his brethren, they reject him. But then you get over to Genesis chapter 45, the second time they're reunited, they accept him. That's a picture of the first coming and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first time they rejected him, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. The second time, uh, every eye shall see him and behold him, and shall see him as he is. That's, that's what they did. So there's so many things going on here, so many things that are just great concepts and great principles uh, about all of this. And you wanna, you want to look at it, uh, and like I said, Genesis chapter 40. Uh, Genesis chapter uh, thirty-seven through chapter fifty is an incredible thing. One of the things that you want to look at here uh, at the end of verse uh, chapter fifty, verse uh, twenty-six. I know, I know all the books in the Bible, uh, they're all there for a purpose and a reason, in the order that they are. But the last verse in Genesis chapter 50 is verse 26, and it says this, so Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. Now, Genesis is a great book, and it starts out in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. And God had a perfect plan. And that plan was eternal life, a life without any heartache, any pain. But man didn't want it that way. And so the book, to me, is a great book because it starts out in the beginning, in the beginning God, and it winds up in a coffin in Egypt. Because man didn't want to do what God wanted to do, we have death in this world and we're all going to wind up in a coffin in Egypt. Egypt, the type of the world. One of the greatest books in all of the Bible for its portrayal of life. God, in the beginning, wanted only the best. Man wouldn't have it. So at the end of the book, it's, we're put in a coffin in Egypt. And then I think the next book is even better. The book of Genesis ends with a man in a coffin in Egypt. But the next book, Exodus, is the coming out by the blood. And that's the great thing of God. Even though the man, even though in the beginning God created heaven and earth and he had a great plan, man rejected it and man winds up in a coffin, God still makes a way to get us out of Egypt through the blood of a lamb. See how that thing is? That's incredible. But that is what the Bible does. Now, I want to look at you this too. I think this is, Took at Genesis chapter 46. I think this is one of the most amazing things in your Bible. You say, you say that all the time. I know, I just can't make up my mind which one's more amazing. <laughs> all right, finally they go down, you know, they know the deal. They throw him in a hole, they bring him out, sell him to the Midianites. He winds up down in Egypt. And then what happens down there is the fact that he goes through all the things that he goes through. God brings a famine. Through that famine, he brings them to Egypt to get food. He reunites them back and forth. They go through a little thing here where he plays with them a little bit. And then finally, he reveals himself to them. And then he goes back and he says, bring everybody down to Egypt. Bring everybody down to Egypt. Go back and get my father. Go back and get everything, everything and everybody and bring him here. And, and I, I just can't, I just, there's things like this I just love the Bible. Look at, look at Genesis chapter 46, uh, verse uh, 26. And all the souls that came with Jacob into Egypt, which came out of the loins beside Jacob's sons, wives, and all the souls were threescore and six. Sixty-six people. Bible says salvation is of the Jews. Romans says that the Jews had the first oracles of God. 66 people going down into Egypt and out of Egypt is going to come the nation of Israel that gave you the 66 books of the Bible. That's what you got. That's, that's, that's the Bible for you. That's, that's how that thing works for you. And it's one of the most amazing things that you'll ever see in your life. And... Uh, so now we, we, we see the, the formulation. We see how God began to bring about the formulation of the nation of Israel. Everything in Genesis now should come into a little more clear perspective for you of what we've got. I know there's a lot of stories, a lot of things happening. Put it all into context now, formulation. We went into the end of, end of Genesis here from 37 to 50. We're moving into the sixth section going down into Egypt, which is the introduction to number seven, and these two are together, even though I've lifted them separate, of the, of the calling out. And they're going to, when we pick it up next time, we're going to go down uh, in Exodus. We're going to see them um, laboring and struggling, and then we're going to see God calling them out. And, uh, and then taking them uh, on their journey. And this is all in fulfillment of Genesis chapter 15, what he promised Abraham. This is why you have to see the Bible conceptually. You have to see it, before I try to take you in and teach you everything internally in the Bible, you have to have an understanding of groundwork and foundationalizing of the Bible. The Bible has to, for you, be set up in such a way that you see it in conception.